Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm Stu Levitan. My guest today is one of the most interesting and politically important UW graduates from the late 60s, Helen Schiller. Her career encompassed more than 30 years of civic activism and community organizing with the Black Panther Party, the Students for a Democratic Society, and the Intercommunal Survival Committee, and 24 years as a member of the Chicago City Council. As I said, interesting and important, enough so for the legendary Studs Terkel to include Helen's oral history as a chapter in his book, Hope Dies Last. Helen has written a memoir of her time on the streets and in the suites. It's called Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community. It's from the good people at Haymarket Books. Quite a life, quite a career, quite a memoir. And it was such a pleasure to welcome Helen Schiller to Madison Bookbeat that we talked long enough for two shows. The first aired two weeks ago. As we pick up part two, Helen is reflecting on why she did not join the Weathermen when the Students for a Democratic Society split in 1969. I, I remember we came to Chicago and our initial response to the folks that were, were beginning to form, the ones that we interacted with when they were beginning to form Weathermen was, we didn't really take them seriously. Our focus was grassroots work. So we didn't really take seriously or feel like anyone else was going to necessarily be effective. We felt like the reason we went there was we were out of the classroom. We were out of the campus. We wanted to get in the real world and we needed to interact with people directly. We all agreed on what was wrong with the world. Um, we agreed with the kind of changes we envisioned. We didn't agree on the tactics. We felt that we were in different times and places in regards to what we needed to be to do. So I, in my mind, it wasn't ever really a choice. Uh, I was going to, you know, I thought we were on the, the better path, at least for me. Um, and it was just a handful of us in Racine. There were a few people that had gone also to do the same work in Milwaukee and also in Waukegan, Illinois. Each of those work that was being done in each of those places varied some. I think that there were of the people who went to Madison, I mean, to Milwaukee, I'm pretty sure some of them ended up with room two and some with the weathermen. Um, but we pretty much after Fred died, um, really focused just on Racine and had some interaction with people in Chicago, largely because we were interacting with the Black Panther Party. And, um, and I kind of lost track of most everyone else. Uh, we were so focused on what we did every day. You just mentioned Fred. The title, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, is a slight modification of the adage from Black Panther Party, Illinois Black Panther Party Chairman Fred Hampton's adage, dare to struggle, dare to win. You heard him say that in a social sciences building in May 1969 with the added commentary, if you don't dare to struggle, you don't deserve to win. What do you remember about that first direct exposure to Fred Hampton? Well. It was in an auditorium. I, I see it as an auditorium. I guess it was a classroom. It was huge. It was big. It, in my memory, it was big. I think if I went there again, it might be smaller. Um, but they came, he came in with an entourage, a pretty large entourage of Black Panther Party members on security. So at first, it felt a little intimidating. But uh, all that fell away as soon as he started speaking. And all, I mean, for me, it was a call to action. That's really what I, re I remember just really appreciating that I had been there and had had that opportunity to hear him speak. It was very important. Uh, later on, when we were in Racine and he was, we uh, learned that he had been killed. It was a turning point for me. Um, at that point, actually, I was there with Mark Zalkin and Steve Gold, both from Madison. And we were seriously, Mark and I were, I mean, I, and Mark and I had um, just had a huge fight and we were planning on leaving. I mean, just leaving Racine. We were going to split up and leave Racine. And we woke up to hear that Fred had been killed and looked at each other and said, we can't go. We have to go back. We may not you know, want to talk to each other, but we're going to go and do this work. And Steve joined us. And uh, we were determined at that point to cement some kind of relationship with uh, the Black Panther Party, and because we really were committed to work under the direction of Black leadership, 
And all of that, I think, really had been informed um, in large measure, not just by that one experience, but by what that experience led us to in terms of studying the platform and program of the Black Panther Party, understanding what they were doing, and wanting very much to be able to uh, translate that in our organizing among white people. For white people was our focus. We thought that was the most likely ally. So foreign working people. And that's what we did. And we went back and that's what really, that was the most significant commitment from my perspective of the next step in deciding what I was gonna do for the rest of my life, not really having a plan. (laughs) And uh, we went back to Racine and stayed there uh, for several years. Because we did that, we uh, needed to be able to reestablish relationships. We had been communicating with the uh, National Committee to Combat Fascism in Milwaukee, which was a precursor to being members of the party for them. And Fred Hampton, in the week before he died, had uh, disbanded everybody, all the chapters in Illinois, I think, and the the national, uh, the Milwaukee's chapter, national chapter to combat fashion was affected. So we had to figure out, we didn't know what was going on. We had to figure out how to make a connection. We connected with Slim Coleman and Kathy Archibald, and uh, they connected us with Harold Bell and Ray Lewis from the Rockford chapter of the Black Panther Party. And they started doing, uh, they agreed to get us Black Panther papers, which we sold and paid them for, and and to do political education with us uh, once a month um, from then on for quite a while. And that was really, that was very, very important for the development of our relationship and ultimately for our choice to go to Chicago in 1972 and become part of the Intercommunal Survival Committee, which was cadre, 24-7 cadre of white people working under the direction of the Black Panther Party with our goal of uh, organizing white people to join the Black-led struggle for liberation. And our friend and co-worker Dean Loomis was Yes, so Dean Loomis, we met in Racine, and he was very much a part of the uh, activities, our activities there, which was we developed survival programs, and um, we had a breakfast program, we had a, we drove people, families to visit their loved ones in in state prisons, Uh, we did clothing programs, we had a bookstore, we had a lot of stuff going on, and Dean was one of the people that was recruited and joined us and worked closely with us for many years, and then came to Chicago for several years as well. And what was the uptown neighborhood like when you moved there in the summer of 72? It was, uh, it was the people who lived in uptown in the summer of 1972 were the following. It was the highest concentration of poor white people, largely from um, Appalachia, but not entirely, uh, in, in in Chicago, but I think in in, um, in in most urban areas, it was the largest concentration of Native peoples from in urban in an urban area, one of the largest. Um, it was the had been the port of entry for many of the Japanese Americans moving um, east from Arizona and California after being interned um, during the war. Uh, many of whom, especially by this time, several elderly people who uh, stayed, but not entirely, but who stayed in Uptown. Um, Later on in the mid seventies, it became a port of entry from people from all over Southeast Asia after the end of the Vietnam War. Um, There there had also, there was a, I think probably Koreans already living there. Later on, even later than that, it became port of entry for Russian Jews, seniors mostly, who were coming in through the various different Jewish organization airlifts from Russia, um, from the Soviet Union. And, um, but in, in 1972, it was also the home of the oldest black community or the first home outside of the black belt uh, uh, for black people in Chicago, which there's a story of in the book. And, um, and it was very poor for the most part, but it was surrounded poor and working families. I mean, there were literally uh, people, there were both people who, there were a lot of factories that people were just beginning to lose their jobs in where there had been both skilled labor and unskilled labor, but it was very um, unsteady at that point because the economy was changing. 
And a lot of the factories were closing or beginning to, or they were changing how they were doing stuff. Um, but there was also in the, in the mid sixties and uh, early seventies throughout the country, federal government had created uh, through the through Congress mortgage programs, low interest mortgage programs during a time of double digit inflation um, in order to encourage the construction of low and moderate income housing. And they were all high rises that were built, some for seniors, most for families. And in Chicago, there were 10,000 of those built and 4,000 of them were in the broader uptown area. Um, and they were who lived there were people from literally every country every um, continent, every uh, all from all over the US and from all over Chicago. So it was each building had their own character and they were all very different and some had more moderately priced units and some had low income units with um, section A type certificates. Uh, so it was a so that if you put all that together, it was hugely diverse. And but politically what they had done, was they, we were uh, in between Uptown and the lakefront was a row of high rises that were all uh, was at that point in 1972 was not just middle-class but it was majority Jewish. So there were 10,000 Jewish voters along the lakefront. And, um, and there were uh, single and Uptown had, the heart of Uptown was kind of ringed with single family homes that were obviously also wealthier people. So when they drew the ward boundaries, they drew it in a way that made sure that the concentration of poor and working people of really all backgrounds that lived in Uptown, um, their voting power was diluted by the numbers of people, especially along the lakefront, that they had included in the ward boundary. And, um, and they did no voter registration among poor and working people. So that one of the early things that I did, I think was in 1973, was an analysis of voting patterns and registration patterns. And what we realized and learned was that the registration was so low, especially in the heart of Uptown, that um, li literally, if you counted the the people who were eligible to vote and weren't registered, and the people who were eligible to vote voted had were registered but hadn't voted. That what we figured out that the aldermen of that ward had been elected with less than seventeen percent of the potential voting population. So we started uh, what would be a very long, several decades long process of uh, getting people to register to vote and to circumvent the difficulties and barriers, make it easy for people. We took them downtown all the time. We made demands for broadening. We joined groups that were you know, fighting to broaden uh, access to voting, reg voter registration and voting um, pretty successfully with some of our allies and, uh, uh, and, and started to change that dynamic. Some of the streets or prominent buildings that are within the uptown neighborhood or what? Broadway, Lawrence, Montrose, Wilson, Sheridan Road, Clark Street. Those are the big boundaries. It's technically it's Irving Park for those of anyone who knows Chicago. It's Irving Park to Foster, the lake to um, pretty much to Clark Street. Although I actually went to Ravenswood te legally, technically. Um, when we first got there, the Edgewater and Uptown were one community and Edgewater went north about another mile or two. And um, at some point early on in the 70s, it was uh, the, the two were split into two different communities. Just as you were arriving in Chicago in the summer of 72, Saul Alinsky, who had spent 30 years organizing in Chicago, was dying. He, I think he died within weeks of your moving there. If he had still been living and was still in Chicago, is he someone you would have sought out in any way uh, to talk about Chicago organizing or would you have written him off? Uh, well, we wouldn't have written him off, but we would not have seen him as an ally. He was very close to the machine. And what I learned ultimately or came to believe about his organizing, I've read all of this stuff. What I came to believe was that this is a good example of structure and content. It's kind of, and we had, the, so when we first came to Chicago, let me say this first, what we, how we viewed the machine was structure and content. Um, it was, it was, I didn't talk about this, but politically speaking, 
Um, I just talked about who lived in Uptown, but in 1972, Uptown was uh, very strongly controlled by the then democratic machine in a way that doesn't exist today. People talk about it like they know what they're talking about. It, 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 nothing is like it was then. Um, the Daily Machine was still very much alive. Daily had, uh, was still alive. He didn't die for another several years. And, um, and they pretty much controlled people's lives, especially in, in poor and working communities. So um, they had control over welfare, which was a big deal then. They had, they had control over uh, most of the uh, managers of housing that people lived in. They had control over uh, so much of what people, and people were very poor. They had difficulty getting food. They offered food, they offered drink, they offered rent, they offered not to get you kicked off of welfare, uh, all these different things in order to control how you were voting. Um, but they had a structure that we felt was a helpful structure. It was the content that was a problem. So we had this, we really did look at it as structure and content. I feel the same way about Alinsky's organizing. I think he has some very good suggestions and methods of work, um, tools to be used, if you will, for organizing. But the content that he put into it was aligned with the machine mm -hmm. and led to what I believe in a way that led to opportunism the same way that you see opportunism in, polit in the political arena. So Often when we were interacting with people who organized along an Alinsky model, the conflicts we had always came down to uh, the ultimate organizing, uh, the ultimate negotiating that was done at the end of an, of an organizing campaign. So you pick, you have, an, you have something you're working on. I mean, so we always started from the point of view of what the needs of people were and what do you do to get to a solution? So we were always guided by an actual material impact. What we found often when we were in coalition with somebody was that they were not so much interested. That was they were that was helpful, and they liked the idea of that, and they might even have believed in it. But in the end, they were they 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 were more often than not swayed by a notion of let's just go for if we can't we don't think we can get the material impact let's just get the recognition so that we can at least raise money for the next fight. And that to me always led to cynicism, undermined what you were trying to accomplish and rarely led, um, only led by accident uh, to, or, or maybe because the organizing was so good early on to a material impact, but not necessarily to one that would really be sustainable. Now there's obvious exceptions to that, uh, but the level of opportunism we felt, or at least I felt, um, outweighed the, 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 outweighed the practice. And so I was always, worked a lot with people who studied under Alinsky. And I think that um, there were a lot of very positive aspects in terms of tools, but I've always had an issue with Alinsky organizing. It doesn't seem to me to be geared towards true problem solving. It, it lends itself open too much to opportunism. Hmm. What was your greatest strength as an organizer? Stubbornness, my determination to leave no stone unturned. Uh, I think um, my real focus on on a material impact, and um, and my grasp and struggle with the, my grasp of the fact that this was a prolonged struggle. So being able to that was that was probably the toughest. Being able to hang in there, being able to. Um, collectively have the, the, the ability to be able to hang in there, stay strong, keep going. Um, the, yeah. So, you know, the knowledge that, or the reminder actually, you know, that this is once you get the one, you move a mountain one shovel at a time. Uh, you have to go from A to B to C. You can't jump from A to Z. It doesn't work. You lose track, you lose your relationship with people. So I think that so much method of work that we learned in the early days, and especially in the work that we did on the survival programs and in our various different campaigns, especially around community control of police, um, I think were, were the real strengths that, that, that I learned that really helped me, that helped me be a good alderman, actually, in the end. In, in terms of staying strong, I noticed on your Wikipedia page that Somebody posted up some fairly nasty quotes from a column or two by Mike Royko uh, during your aldermanic uh, period. Um, 
how much did that get you down and did he ever come around? Um, well, actually we had some, in, in the early elections in 70, he wrote some articles that were pretty damning of my opponent <laughs> or some of his precinct captains. So it was ironic. Um, I don't, um, Roy Cole, actually, we were, we shared a podium at an independent political event where I got an award many years, some years later when I was alderman, I can't remember exactly when, but shortly before he died. So I guess, yeah, he might've come around. At least he was friendly that day. Um, I never, there were a few, if, if there were, there were a few city hall reporters in Chicago, at least most of the time I was alderman, there were always, the, the people who covered city hall always were the same people. I mean, they had their beat. Some of them or education, which I did a lot of before I became alderman. Um, so there, I did develop some relationships with some of the um, different reporters, but most of them, it was a, I had a tense relationship with because I had to, and they didn't understand where I was coming from. And sometimes I was able to get it across and sometimes not. But the main problem I had is that I'm always looking for a solution and I'm not really interested in a superficial response to anything. I want people to understand the essence. So you have to get to it. And I think by sorting through details before I get to a general statement. So that I'm saying all that to say, it's very hard to get a soundbite out of me. <laughs> and, um, and the reporters that wanted to cover me were very frustrated by that. And the ones that didn't, just, it was great. They just didn't have to cover me. Um, and if they had to, I realized that even though it was counterintuitive, it was important for me to give them a mouthful uh, because it was the only way, my only chance of getting any kind of decent coverage is if they understood where I was coming from or if at least they had the facts. So I always had this sort of song and dance that I did with reporters, sometimes friendly, sometimes just struggling. In, in the decades before you got elected, when you were doing the organizing, what action gave you the greatest satisfaction? Oh my God, I don't know. I, I loved ultimately getting into conversations with people where I could see a light bulb go off. <laughs> or, you know, so there were moments when, like I do have one story in the book where I, I had knocked on someone's door multiple times and um, trying to get them to, while I was doing home distribution of the Black Panther paper, trying to get them just to talk to me. Because we always had much more, we had a lot to say. We'd talk about the paper, but we'd also talk about all the things we we're doing in the community. And um, after multiple, multiple, multiple times that I knocked on his door, he's a huge guy. I didn't know who was behind the door. He opened the door, grabbed the paper out of my hand, and said, and I, you know, I kind of like, what do you, what's going on here? So I'm like, oh, and, um, and then he says, what do you have there? And he grabbed it out of my hand and he just started talking to me and joined the home distribution round. Um, so that was as a story representative of, that was it. You know, you actually, there was a light bulb moment. You actually made a connection. Um, so that was both, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, but there were so many, so many things that we did that were rewarded by the participation of so many more people um, that, that there's probably too many to mention. Yeah. What about on the council? What, what were, what do you think were the most important things you accomplished on the council in terms of the greatest positive impact to the greatest number of people? Was it the increased AIDS funding? Uh, was it some of the development issues? What do you think? Um, the, for me, it was, uh, boy, I don't know. Um, every day seemed like a struggle around something. There are things that I can tell you that uh, this is sort of an opposite answer, but I can tell you that of all of the things that I did do, the ones that I feel the like we didn't do enough of or didn't figure it out, because it's really all about anything can be solved ultimately. You just have to figure out what it is. The ones that I feel the most, probably the only one that, I hate to use the term regret, but um, let me use it loosely and say that the one area of regret would be in um, the area of police misconduct and, 
well, actually, in, in, in the structure of the police, the institutional racism and the institutional inherent corruption that exists within the police department and the absolute difficulty and inability to have to make the kind of changes that would really that we still need to make to, to really change the relationship, especially uh, for young people uh, who are constantly geared towards uh, a process of criminalization rather than a, a process of realizing their, you know, really being able to having their chances and opportunity to realize their full potential. And um, I think that's where I feel the most concerned about those where it's been possible to make change. Um, Clearly, the human rights legislations and changes that are made were important, but on housing, to me, it's about stable communities. Um, housing, to me, is really critical to that, only because if you don't have a roof over your head, it's hard to be stable. But it's so much broader than that, which is also where the police come in. But it's really, ultimately, you don't if you don't have true public safety where everyone feels safe, and has the opportunity then to fully realize their full potential. So you need to be able to have access to the educational system. You need to have access to um, a, a stability, to a way to make money that um, uh, gives you the opportunity to live your life as opposed to work. You know, you don't have to, you're not living to work, but you're working to live, but you need to have that work or some resource to do it. There's so many components of it. And for me, um, one of the most key issues was to address the issue of affordability in the city. And I had a lot of success in doing that, um, but I didn't have success in broadening enough the commitment to that so that that continued after I left the city council. So it's still on the agenda, supposedly, and it's talked about here and there, but to really move forward and make, um, and make progress on, the, on this notion of both stable communities and affordability of which housing is a piece, um, I feel like we've really gone backwards, not forwards um, in the last 12 years. And even during the whole, since I've left, but during the whole time that I was there, that was a daily struggle. And um, to accomplish any kind of forward moving movement, it also was important that the broader number of people understood what was going on, which is why I spent so much time on the budget and so much time in the council making the budget hearings be fully engaged in so that the media had a chance to be able to actually know what was the breath more about what was in the budget because there was more hearings and to be able to talk about it more to the public and therefore have the public know more, uh, but also be interested in attending. So there are all these things going on that I think are key to people really getting into understanding what things are about, but you can, and then to act accordingly and make demands. Um, and I think that while in some ways there's more of that because there's some more progressive people on the council, um, in other ways, some of the real key questions for me that have to do with having a material impact and really dealing with public safety just are not getting, they just, they're moving too slowly. They're just moving too slowly. So I'm very hopeful at this next series of elections uh, that there can be, uh, I'm really positive about what the potential outcome can be. And hopefully the level of debate and discussion is more than just a superficial uh, telling people what they want to hear, but a real, um, and more often than not, a real conversation about what could be and what we need to do to get there. Speaking of the budget, was there much of a reaction when you voted the first time for a Mayor Daley budget in 1999? Oh, when I, I don't think it was 99, I think it was 2000, but oh my God, that was a big deal. They, I mean, no one could believe it. <laughs> It was a very big deal. And, and the funny thing was that, I mean, ultimately, I remember the year, I remember thinking about this and saying, you know, this is really my habit. And I really don't have a problem with voting no again, but I don't really have a reason to. So uh, because they had agreed to do a bunch of citywide stuff, which no one understood why I was talking about citywide stuff. So I got a, um, uh, I got them to agree to do an amnesty program on parking tickets, which was huge because, you know, people couldn't go to work because they couldn't get their car. They couldn't pay for it. Um, and 
And they were like, well, what, you know, it affected people in my ward quite a bit, but it was citywide. And it was like, why are you working on citywide stuff as one example? Um, that was constantly a question to me, but to me, everything is related and you're also helping people in your ward. Um, but yeah, they were like, uh, so I got, a, there were a bunch of things that they agreed to do, but the main thing was I'd gotten answers to every single one of my questions, which I had been saying for years, if you're not gonna answer me, how can I possibly vote for this or vote on it? And so I had gotten the answers to every single one of my questions. I'd gotten them before the vote. Most cases I'd gotten them before the committee uh, heard that department. And, um, and so it seemed like if I voted against it, it was, I was just being cued. It wasn't, you know, but I, I couldn't, I didn't really have an argument because my argument had been that you weren't giving me the information and they were actually agreeing to make changes. So to me, it was like, okay, if I vote for this budget, I'm now in a position to be able to use this activity that, you know, this sort of um, uh, way in which it came about as, as a standard for future budgets, including getting attention to these, any number of these different issues that were really critical uh, from my perspective. So, uh, you know, whatever it was. And, but from other people's point of view, it was, oh, she's now made a deal and um, she's going to get this, she's going to get that. And that was largely because of the cynicism that people have about the way in which politics generally works. So sure, if that meant that there were people in city government that were now going to talk to me who were afraid to talk to me before, I'd take that. <laughs> that was great. And I would take advantage of it. Um, it wasn't like I hadn't figured out how to do it before, but that made life easier. So that meant I could do more. So that was good. But it wasn't to get it wasn't that wasn't the reason I was voting for it. The reason I was voting for it is I'd made demands and they'd been met. And now it's time to move on and make more demands and get those met. And uh, but yeah, the, the reaction was it was amazing. I mean, it was like, oh, my God, there were people, the person who's the chairman of the budget committee at the time jumped up because she didn't know I was going to do it <laughs> and was like, she couldn't, she was like, she screamed and she turned to me because I sit behind her a few rows and was like, really? Did you really say that? Yeah, it was funny. How did that then play into a couple of years later, there's a, a so-called big box ordinance yeah. that mandated a $9.25 minimum wage to be indexed. Uh, annually cost of living index for stores with 90,000 square feet. Daily vetoed it and you voted to sustain the veto. How difficult a vote was that for you and how much did that surprise and or disappoint your supporters? That was really one of the hardest votes for me on the city council. The problem that existed for me was on the one hand, the ordinance had been gotten as far as it had gotten because Ed Burke, who was one of the um, architects of the opposition to Harold Washington in 1983, this is like 2006 or seven, I think. Ed Burke had negotiated this ordinance and the way they had gotten to the 90,000 square feet number was that he said it had to be at least that it had to be that because in his ward all of the big boxes were smaller had less than 90,000 so it was his way to support something citywide and not have it negatively affect any of his funders or supporters for me the issue was about national chains that were not paying the living wage and that people couldn't survive on without having two or three jobs and those, the majority of those were much smaller. They were the McDonald's, you know, the Burger Kings, all of the fast food stores, and many of the smaller big boxes, like a, you know, Ace or even some of them, um, I think Home Depot, there were a bunch of them that were, were under 90,000. So the only ones that they really affected was Walmart, which wasn't yet in the city. So this was a way to keep them out. I didn't have a problem with that. I just thought you should be including everyone or having something that actually had a much more material impact on the people being affected and target. And target, this was in the middle of, I had. I was negotiating a, um, a development that was going to, 
the goal of which was to accomplish what I had set out to do when I was first alderman, which was to prove, we didn't talk about this when we first talked about uh, Uptown, um, but we wanted to prove that it was possible to create an, uh, a development that was designated to benefit the people who lived there in the area, in the community, um, and to finish that development and actually have it be able to serve those people. So we were developing in an area of the, at Montrose and, and Broadway, between Wilson and Montrose and Broadway, on a five acre site, how, affordable housing, um, a big box that had been actually a target, which was actually part of a survey um, that was done among 1700, that 1700 people responded to. It was like one of those two of the highest responses of what people wanted. Bunch of smaller retail, um, a campus park for a local school, uh, but it was a critical mass uh, from, an, from a retail point of view in a community, in an area that really needed it, but mostly it was about the housing. And the target was a piece of what we were doing and it had remarkably broad support from a very broad group of people who really disagreed with me on, um, on, every, on each other and also included my opposition as well as my supporters who were upset because they actually wanted more housing but we, were, we did as much housing as we could. Anyway, the point is I was sort of caught in between these two things and had lots of conversation. Actually, I met with all of the unions that were part of part of the proposal and supporting it. And they actually, you know, in those meetings, the leadership said, we're going to give you a pass. You have to do what you have to do. Because I had been, because I was one of the, you know, strongest proponents for affordability in the city, for specifically around housing, which they were also engaged in. And they didn't disagree with me on this broader picture, uh, on the, how cynical it was, the way in which this was written and how limited it was, a reach it was going to have. And we had negotiated actually with Target uh, before I voted, they had agreed to do uh, a number of things, including starting their wages out at either at or pretty close to what we at that time was the minute was a for, was a living wage. I think they had agreed to start it at that. They had agreed to uh, give a uh, early application process to people living um, in the community surrounding where they were going to be. Uh, so there were all and they they met all that. Uh, in the end, it was a few years later, but they met it. Um, so it was very hard for me, but those are the reasons that I didn't vote actually in the original in the original vote. It, it came to a head for me when um, the veto vote came up and I had to actually get out there and do something I would never have imagined I would do, which is to vote with Daly, number one, on something so big, and then to vote with him on something that on its appearance was anti-labor. But in reality, um, I didn't think was given that it wasn't going to have that broad impact, material impact that everyone that they the proponents were claiming it would have. Can I answer your question? Yeah. W would the younger Helen Schiller have understood and supported that analysis and conclu and conclusion? Maybe. We often were. We. I, I think maybe. Yeah. I think so. I'm not 100% sure. But I think so, had that younger Helen Schiller had the opportunity to know all those facts and details and had that conversation. I mean, the people we were, it wouldn't have affected. So for instance, in Uptown in 72, there was one grocery store which ultimately closed and which we, um, we picketed out of to demand that they remove grapes and lettuce from their shelves in the early 70s or mid 70s. And I'm sure that the people there had a very poor living wage, I mean, didn't have a living wage. And most people in Uptown were losing their jobs or struggling to survive. And, and I think that if there was a proposal that wouldn't have affected them, wouldn't have addressed their issues with that, and we had understood that, then, then yeah, I would have understood that. But I don't know what information I would have had. Um, but with the same information, yeah, without it, I don't know. Were there things uh, that Alderman Schiller did that you know organizer Schiller would have been confused or, or upset by? Well, there's this dichotomy that I mentioned earlier. So I think that it wasn't until I was Alder actually Alderman that, 
and was confronted by people like myself, including my friends who were demanding things and demanding that I find a solution where I saw I also needed their help in getting that solution. So I think that I wouldn't, as an alderman, I didn't fault anyone for bringing something to me and making that demand. It was incumbent upon me to ask them for the help that I needed and explain why I needed it and to establish that relationship. So in that sense, as the activist, I don't think that um, I would have, if as an alderman, I wasn't responsive to the activist, then yeah, as an activist, I would have been really upset. But having said that, as an alderman, had I not done that and someone had pointed it out to me, I hope that I would have understood that I was just, I had to make a change. I think that most of the time when it was pointed out to me, I had to, so we had some we had some conflicts and um, and it was difficult because I couldn't always some of this stuff you know you don't really know whether you're going down the right path or not un, until it plays itself out so it could be a while before you are able to make an evaluation am I making the right or the wrong choice um, so I think that as an activist I didn't care about that as an alderman. I had to actually do something that would have an impact on someone's life. There was some power involved there. I had to be concerned about it. And, you know, we're still waiting to see in some cases whether it was the right or the wrong choice. So I think that's the difference, if you know what I mean. How has Chicago city government changed since you first got elected in 87 and since you left in 2011? Well, Harold Washington was a unique mayor in, um, and not, any, I mean, he raised the bar in a lot of areas. Um, I think that uh, Sawyer and then Daly, the two aldermen that followed him, I mean, mayors that followed him, uh, made an attempt in different ways They were in different situations to meet that bar. In Daly's case, he never quite grasped the essence of Harold's embracement of the bar that he made. So, so for instance, he set a bar on um, uh, minority participation in contracts as well as in hiring. He set a bar on school reform. Uh, he set a bar in, as an example on other things too, but take those two examples. Daly tried to meet the bar, but he did it in a way that Harold never would have. I don't think, especially with school reform. And so we didn't really get school reform. We got some, we did do as an example. So, and, and there were shades and variations of these things. Um, after him, there's some things that stayed within the DNA, if you will, of the city as, as an issue that no mayor has really figured out how to address since. I don't think they had the same political will. Um, and Ram followed Daly and Lightfoot has followed Ram and I don't think that um, in either case, at least, and, and also with Daly, at least on the issues that are most critical uh, ultimately to address, the issues truly of institutional racism and corruption have been, um, are high on the agendas. Uh, they may be, institutional racism may be important for life, but addressing it or figuring it out from the perspective of uh, the people most affected has continued to be done in a manner that is more blaming the victim than in solving a problem. And I think that uh, that has been true since, since um, Harold died and was reflected in each of, uh, in, 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 um, in the culture that's, that, that has followed each of the uh, mayor since he died, and therefore all through the time that I was alderman. Um, but I think that that we were, I can't speak for since then, but you know, I got daily, I mean, daily moved on some issues. He moved on affordability, not all the way to where I wanted to, but at least we actually had it codified that there was a goal um, and resources put into accomplishing that goal. Um, we were able to pass the human, um, uh, we're passing human rights ordinance under Sawyer, but we're able to build on that throughout the daily years. We were able to um, 
expand. Uh, there was an experiment in community policing, but it was done in a manner that was so uneven. I don't think it was very, I think it had more negative than positive aspects to it. Um, there, there, the, the Harold had initiated putting resources together to address ward by ward historic problems with infrastructure, physical infrastructure that hadn't been addressed previously. And that continued, um, has continued to this day, uh, but not, um, but I think it's lacking some of the direction or flexibility that could, uh, could be more helpful in the city, but it, that continued. So I, I don't, we're not where we need to be and there's a lot that has to be done, but at the core of it is the question of um, affordability and the question of, of public safety and specifically um, how that is determined through the operation of the police department. Um, and until we address those things, the city is not a welcoming place, as welcoming a place as it should be to the majority of people who live here, in my view. And how has community organizing changed since you moved to Uptown 50 years ago? Well, the city has changed so much. Um, and, you know, there, the development of technologies had a huge impact on people in so many different ways. Uh, and, and it's also impacted just the structures that we live in and where we live and our expectations. So um, it's such a different world. Um, and organizing, so there's all the organizing you do through social media, which I have to admit to not having, not entirely understanding and grasping, counting a lot on younger people who do grasp it. And so, you know, I, I just have a lot of faith that they know what they're doing, but I don't understand it necessarily. Um, but, you know, the stuff we did, the door-to-door -door work is, is much harder to do. There's, it's harder to get into places. It's harder to, uh, but still where you can go door-to-door -door and people are doing it, which they do much less than they used to, I think is still really important. It's that face-to-face -face contact, whether it's through social media or in the real world, um, is critical. And I think there's less of that than there used to be. But there's so many other ways in which people communicate. So it used to be more focused and concentrated the way they did. It was easier for me anyway to be able to understand that and deal with it. Uh, today, it is a whole new ball game and there are people who understand it much better than I do. Um, and I think they have to give the answer to that question, but that wasn't there 30, 40 years ago. Um, and it is now and it's very impactful in some way. I'm just not sure exactly how to best use it. Well, even with that caveat, finally, any advice for the activists and older persons of today and tomorrow? I just think that um, what I, I think building a seat of swimming is really critical. And both the activists and anyone in a position of power, including elected officials, need to, uh, it's a symbiotic relationship that's really important if you want to move forward. And that's much more important than any of our egos or individual uh, quirks. Um, and I think that to, and one, two, I think in this environment, we need to think more about united fronts to be able to be on the defense of uh, so much of the really reactionary right-wing insanity that has, well, first of all, the right-wing insanity that's moved into our world, but also I think a tendency to be reactionary uh, for both the left and the right. Everybody is reacting these days, um, largely because of the level of polarization. So I think um, it's a really important time to be thinking about what does it take to, to at least maintain the level of uh, uh, opening up that the country has done. I mean, let me put it this way. We have right-wing folks that we would have thought years ago that weren't gonna get the kind of acknowledgement and sense of purpose and place that they have today, including their influence on the Supreme Court, as an example, um, largely out of a philosophy that says that, that at least resonates pu uh, publicly as we want to go back, we're originalists, we want to go back to the original version of the uh, Constitution versus everyone else who's benefited from since the original version, which, you know, was that you're only a citizen if you're 
if you own property, which means you're wealthy, you're white, and you're a man. And um, all of, but also which had in it through the Bill of Rights and the way in which it was structured, the opportunity to broaden those rights. So all of through amendments. And so all the ways in which those rights have been broadened since the late 18th, since the 18th century, um, uh, in terms of civil rights, in terms of the right to vote, in terms of all of those things um, are at risk now because there are people who actually are have a majority on the Supreme Court making these decisions that believe that we should get rid of those, you know, those things, that progress. And so anyone who wants that progress to continue because there's so much more we have to do, um, needs, we have to start with a point of being at least defensive at the moment, organizing the way in which the right organize, which is on the most local level, to make sure that we build the sea that we need to build in, in order to be able to move forward and expand access to uh, all of the things that this world has to offer rather than to pull back on access and to go back to this his initial very um, institutional racism that was the basis of our founding of our, of our nation. And that's what I think, that's, that's the core which I think we have to look to the future. We have to protect what we've gained. We have to make sure we build a sea in which to swim in, in order to be able to expand and broaden that. And in the words of Chairman Fred, dare to struggle, dare to win. Absolutely. You don't dare to struggle, you don't deserve to win. With that, my thanks to Helen Schiller. Again, the book is Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community. There are efforts underway to bring Helen back to Madison for reading. We'll let you know when that is scheduled. Angela and Devin will be your hosts next week, speaking with poet Nikki Walschlager. I'll be back in my usual fourth-week spot on the 26th to talk with sports writer Dennis Punzel about his book about the 2021 national champion Wisconsin volleyball team, Point Wisconsin. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Charlie Pittman, Engineer Andrew Thomas, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored, Community Radio.